Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Hello, this is Tony Roberts, Revealing Voices, here with my guest co-host, Laura Pagliano. Hi, Laura. Hi, Tony. We have a special guest with us here in this advocacy series of uh, podcasts, uh, this time looking at the clinician side of advocacy, and we have with us Catherine Carr. Hi. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Laura introduced me to Catherine, so I'm going to let her say a couple things about what's special for Catherine to come on to our, our podcast. Well, Tony, when you and I were talking about this, this series of four podcasts that are on the topic of advocacy, I thought about the friends I know who are advocates, many, many friends who are advocates. And Catherine came to mind because uh, advocacy can take so many forms. There are people who advocate at the federal level, at the state level, they advocate in their counties for updates to policies and funding. And Catherine really, I consider a great advocate with what I would call boots on the ground. Catherine is a clinician who for 15 years has been treating some of the most difficult cases of people who become mentally ill, and that is people with psychosis. And so I thought Catherine would be a great guest to come on, talk about her clinical experience and really her life treating patients with uh, serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar with psychotic features, um, et cetera. So I was really thrilled when Catherine said yes, and um, I'm glad to have her on tonight and talk to her about uh, her clinical experiences. Great. So there's often times I've found with people in helping professions and particularly with counselors, therapists, pastors, in some cases, that there is some uh, that draws you into the field of, of psych, psychology, therapy. In your practice, in your personal life, what, what was it for you? Well, I mean, to start with, I've always just been fascinated by, by people, you know, human behavior, animal behavior too, actually. Uh, just always watching. I'm an observer. I've always loved watching people, sort of figuring out what they're about what they're interested in, how they behave together. You know, as a kid, I was just always into stories and fairy tales and anything that was about, you know, sort of the mystery of people and, and the things that, that transpire between, between human beings. 
so yeah, I've always just been fascinated by people always like people actually, which I guess helps. And I guess what drew me really to the field of mental health was first off my own experience in therapy, which was, you know, profound and I couldn't be, you know, happier that, that I found, found that way of, of understanding myself better. Um, but also, like you said, a lot of people in in the helping professions are there because they've had experiences in their own families or communities that that you know made it kind of an important subject for them. Great, Catherine. I know you you have told me privately this is your uh, second career. Yes, and so I feel like you probably picked the most difficult patients. By which I mean most difficult to engage many times. And so your second career seems to me like kind of a tough one. What do you have to say about about choosing this to work with these populations who are typically hard to engage, hard to keep in treatment, et cetera, as your so-called second career? But that's a good question. My first career was in the arts and I had a jewelry business for about a decade. And that was kind of an interesting segue into therapy because I would travel around to, to meet with my clients and I would roll into town once, twice, maybe three times a year, spend a few hours with someone. And I, they would tell me all of, all of their personal you know, lives. I learned about their marriages and their businesses and their finances. And it was sort of this interesting experience of really getting to know these people in kind of these intense and interesting ways and sort of figuring out like, you know, what is it that they need and how can I best relate to them? But over the years, jewelry sort of stopped seeming that important. It just didn't seem like it was something I needed to spend the rest of my life doing. So when I decided to to find the second career, I was drawn pretty strongly to social work because of the sort of, you know, social justice and service values connected to it. And when I went to school, my original concentration was actually in aging. I expected that I would work with um, with elderly people in a social work capacity. But my first job was in a community mental health center, and I just really fell in love with with that work and with the population and kind of haven't looked back. And I think it was probably a, a lucky thing that I started where I did because they had a very sort of solid, established, you know, community center that had a lot of long long-standing clients, a lot of people that have been there for, you know, decades and were sort of very established, you know, people who were stable in their own way. And I could develop, you know, long-standing relationships with some people that were dealing with some really serious, serious symptoms and illness. And I just found these folks to be the most interesting, uh, the most compelling, and really just super rewarding in that to see progress was so, you know, not an everyday experience, but it was also, you know, kind of all the more exciting when, when you could really engage with someone and see them start to make, to make progress, to feel better. I saw a doctor speak at a schizophrenia symposium a few years back, and he was remarkable. He kind of chided the audience who was all all clinicians and family members, but he said uh, stigma 
really starts with our profession. He was a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and he spent his entire career with probably the hardest cases that other people wouldn't take. But he said, stigma starts with our profession because we pick and choose who we want to help, right? And he said, schizophrenia looks to them like a dead-end job where Mm -hmm. your patient is chronic, he's probably not gonna improve. If he improves, it's five years in, you know, so there's not this instant reward kind of gratification factor where, oh, yes, you offer a solution and the person takes you up on it immediately and you have some success. So what do you what do you think about that idea? I feel that that is prevalent. I know many, many families have a hard time finding a clinician when there's a history of suicide attempts oh. and when there is chronic, chronic illness. What do you think about that? Yeah, Laura, I think that's absolutely true. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that really when I first got started, because the, like I said, the clinic that I was working in, everybody was very committed to the population. I didn't realize that, for example, prescribing clozapine was not, you know, a common thing or that people being able to get a long acting injectable antipsychotic medication was not like something that you could get everywhere. But yeah, it's absolutely true. And it's, it's disappointing that there are so few options for people who are dealing with psychosis. And especially if there's been any history of, of suicidality or incarceration, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's deeply unfortunate. And there's no doubt that, you know, the sickest and most complicated folks are treated when they're able to get treatment by the least experienced and least compensated mm clinicians. Mm. It really is, you know, community mental health is kind of the bottom of the barrel in terms of, you know, compensation. Well, you know, the the pay, but also just the feeling that you're not getting any, any, you know, kudos, particularly for the work that you're doing that can be very, very difficult. It it is not glamorous. No. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something that excites me about you know, your work and where you're, you're feeling led that just before the broadcast, you shared with Laura and, and myself that you're looking at some training that you hope to do with people who would be in relationship with those that were diagnosed. And I know for me, when I was a pastor and then later a patient at the time was called or someone with a diagnosis. There were so many people involved in my life that, that I needed to, to, to have more training. My family members, my, you know, they, they would look at that. NAMI provides its own, you know, Mm -hmm. advocacy, but what are you sensing? And some of this may have already been starting. What are you, sensing in the terms of your training for people? What I was thinking, because I'm, I'm no longer working in a clinic setting, I got to the point where I was not no longer able to sort of manage the paperwork and the regulation and all of those kinds of expectations. I just kind of burned it out. And now I'm, I'm in private practice. But what I one way that I, I think I can really 
be helpful is to develop a training specifically. I see it specifically for other mental health professionals, especially newer clinicians, working in clinic settings, or even in some of the larger, you know, group settings. I, and I know, you know, that is something that people are really interested in. Every time I bring it up, people are, are very interested in, in that information because you don't get that in school and you only get it through a lot of study or direct experience. And I have, you know, 15 years at this point of experience that I can try to pass along. And, you know, the average clinician does not see, you know, 80, 90% of their caseload people living with, with a psychotic illness. So they don't have the opportunity to develop the understanding, the expertise. And there's so many misunderstandings and not, you know, every individual is different. And we have all of these unfortunate stereotypes about what it means, you know, to be living with schizophrenia. So I see it as, as for, for clinicians, especially new clinicians in various settings. But I mean, I suppose, yeah, there could be maybe something even for pastors, you know, as we know, often that is who families will turn to first mm-hmm. when there's, you know, signs of some, you know, mental illness in a family member. So yeah, I that think, gives me an idea. Thanks. <laughs> I think there's just a massive dearth of experience and a, and a dearth of the depth of knowledge that someone like you has about psychosis. We could watch a lecture, we could read a book. It would take someone, you know, the same 15 years that you put in to get where you are today in your understanding of psychotic disorders. And that that real lack of depth of experience and knowledge with that, I feel is not really helpful to the patient or the family because your child gets a diagnosis in a clinical setting, whether it's a hospital or a private practitioner, and then your child is given to the family to take home. Yeah. And, and I, I remember begging doctors for information. What should I do? What should I say? How should I say it? So that my home life was more harmonious and also so that I was a good helper to my son. And I think that you're right that what you said, you said something to me earlier before we got on this call about the nuances Mm -hmm. that people don't understand. First, they have a general lack of understanding of some of some things about psychosis, but also you spoke um, and it really touched me when you said there are so many nuances to treating a patient. Do you Mm -hmm. want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. You know, I think what's important to understand when treating anybody, I guess, but especially someone who has something as as complicated as as a psychotic disorder is there's no way around listening and really getting to try to understand what their experience is. And the only way that we get to know that is by being open to really hearing about it. And to get there, you have to be someone that the individual can trust. And I think that the foundation of all of that is respect. And you have to really respect as a human being, as a a whole human being, not just a, a, a diagnosis or a compendium of problems or whatnot. 
but this is a person who is, you know, was bored and grew up just like everybody else and, and happened to have this terrible thing happen to them, but it doesn't make them any less, you know, a total person. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making sense there. Yes, definitely. You know, look upon someone as, as your peer, even though you're in a, a helping or a clinical um, relationship to them, but to really be very open to listening and just being with them. You know, it's not just about extracting information. It's about really trying to observe and to empathize with and to put in the time, mm-hmm. you know, because like, like you said, sometimes folks can be very difficult to engage. They don't want to talk. They don't want to share because they've learned what happens when they do. And it's usually not good. Mm-hmm. You know, if I tell someone about, you know, my, my, the voices or about th- these things that I'm thinking, I learned that, you know, people get upset or I get taken to the hospital or, or right. whatever. So they very understandably either don't feel like really sharing with people what's going on with them. Cause it doesn't get them um, good stuff most of the time, or they're, you know, have other reasons that they're reluctant or even can't you know i've worked with a good number of people who are sort of word salad in their communication it doesn't mean that they're not communicating it means that you just have to be super patient and listen really carefully and you can kind of learn to understand someone you know even though they're not having conversation like we are so i think it's really just about being able to put in the time with someone and being uh, you know aware of their humanity mm. i love that Pretty basic. I I was thinking that uh, one of the questions I had prepared a long time ago when we had done a preliminary session was what makes for a good therapist. But I want to expand that question a little bit, given your your calling and say, you know, uh, you mentioned the word respect. How do you teach respect to someone who is is charged by virtue of their blood or by choosing to enter into a relationship with someone with a diagnosis? Well, I think, let me clarify, Tony, are you talking about like someone who is, is in a, in a helping situation, helping relationship or as, as maybe even like a a loved one or or family member or partner? If you were approaching uh, how, how to train someone who's in a who is themselves in a relationship, a loved one, or you know, having a hard time showing respect without being overwhelmed. I'll put it okay. That way. Well, I think the well, the different answers to that. One is that the family member needs support too, because mm-hmm. it is bewildering and and overwhelming sometimes. Think really. to work towards an understanding that nobody chooses this, you know, the person who is struggling with with symptoms or behaviors that are, 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 you know, distressing to themselves and the people around them is that they're not doing this on purpose. This is not a choice. And they are responding in the way that they're able to at that time. And a lot of psychoeducation, you know, explaining like what, what is a delusion? What is the experience of hearing voices like, you know, what is cognitive, you know, slowing when someone is having trouble processing and responding to questions, it may not be that they're being difficult. It's that they can at that moment, put the words together. So to try to help a, a, a loved one understand sort of like what's what with, with 
the symptoms that they're seeing and what that might be like internally for someone in terms of how frightening or frustrating it is. People really don't know much, you know, about what all of these different terminologies are, like what is a delusion? And one trick that I would kind of do with my supervisees in a clinic setting when I was, you know, training young clinicians or new clinicians, I would say, imagine you came into work tomorrow and the front desk people told you that you weren't an employee, you weren't a therapist, that you were a patient and you were there for your appointment to see the doctor. Like, what would that be like for you? How hard would it be for you to be convinced that that, that it was true? You know, imagine right. that happening to you and what that, how, how frightening and, and, and infuriating an experience like that would be. So really trying to, you know, help that loved one see what the other person's experience is like, not just, and, and to kind of help them, you know, through, I guess, groups like Laura's understand other people are experiencing the same thing. This individual is not uniquely behaving this way. This is what these illnesses look like. And that there is, you know, hope through treatment, definitely. Definitely hope through treatment, hope in medicine, hope mm -hmm. in good therapy. One thing Tony talked about in another session was some people say that therapy doesn't work well on severe brain illnesses. And what do you say to that? In your, from all your experience, helping people just have a better day, a better week, a better month. Well, I, I think from my kind of understanding is that people who who say I don't want to hear about you know therapy for for brain illnesses is they don't want to hear about only therapy for brain illnesses. The idea that like you know someone with a really severe illness can suddenly be magically well with, with therapy. I understand why that it sounds problematic to families, especially, but I don't, absolutely therapy is important for a lot of reasons. And, you know, one is, and it has to be good therapy, you know, where the person actually feels understood and heard and accepted, um, is to have a place where they can feel safe sharing, you know, their experiences and their frustrations and their hopes and dreams, even that might not be heard well by other people who don't think that they can, you know, have hopes and dreams. Uh, right. But absolutely. But I mean, I think I was trained um, in, you know, cognitive therapy for psychosis. And I was amazed at how effective it was in. It was new, new things I'd never heard, like tending and befriending and, you know, kind of normalizing. And there are things that you don't want to normalize necessarily, but to be like, yeah, boy, you, you know, a lot of people have this experience and, you know, there are different reasons that people hear voices and, you know, to, to help people understand their experiences as not just, you know, this thing unique only to them, but that this happens to a lot of other people and it's not something so bizarre or shameful. Uh, and the times that I would do the tending befriending kind of thing where I would just sit and chat about music for an entire session with someone, which may not look like therapy, you know, to some folks, but that was what was helpful to that person that day and what got them to, to, to trust me and to look forward to coming and sitting in my office again. Right. Uh-huh. So yeah, it was the more I've learned, the more I kind of have understood, you know, how to do therapy with someone who is is 
coping with even extreme symptoms. And I had one client that we would, we would sing karaoke together in my office every session. <laughs> and it wasn't my idea of a great time. <laughs> that wasn't your idea? It was not, no. Johnny um, and June. June What's that? I said, Johnny Cash and June Carter. That wasn't your idea? <laughs> no. Karaoke. Uh, no, we would sing mostly Michael Jackson. And uh, oh. <laughs> we would seek, they would come in with a request if I want a song that, that makes me feel like this or, you know, yeah. I want something that's going to make me feel assertive, you know, because sure. I've got talk to somebody so I would and I don't sing believe me I do not sing so but that was what was um the helpful thing on, you know, that, so on I, that day I'm curious to hear your perspective on what has happened over the course of your career to create obstacles for that kind of therapy which we laugh but that really it, I mean I I had the luxury of being diagnosed in 1995 and spent that year, a course of six six weeks of inpatient therapy with art therapy, with wow. you know all this stuff. That, I mean, it, it didn't cure me, but it but it certainly made a difference. And now you go in. I mean, the last time I was in was uh, February of 2021, and I literally spent three days and out the you know out the do door with. Uh, uh, you know, hard to see my outpatient. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, you know, I think it reflects kind of the major problems we have with our healthcare system period, but yeah, since I started, things have really changed. And I think I had got to the point where, you know, sending someone to the hospital, absolute last resort, because they might sit in the ER for five days, not very helpful or more, who knows? Right. Um, th they might end up in a, in a, um, uh, an inpatient unit where they stay for two, three days. They get put on a new medicine, they get let go. It's a disaster. In my days, I, ha I have actually like literally begged EMTs to take a client to a particular hospital because I knew it was the only chance they had of being kept long enough to be stabilized. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, a lot of not very comprehensive care. And I think the drive for fee for service, you know, all the services back, back before, before my time, community mental health was found, it was funded by grants. Uh, but now everything is fee for service. And if it doesn't come with a billable code attached, it's not going to happen. And one of my frustrations in the, working with the individuals is, you know, these wonderful medicines that can be life-saving, are life-saving, also come with some downsides like weight gain and, and glucose, blood, blood glucose problems and whatnot. But we weren't able, we were not able to provide, you know, comprehensive nutritional services or, um, you know, effective engaging ways of getting people to move and to, and to exercise and, and to be healthier that way not just for, you know, the physical health, but also we know that exercise is good for everybody's mental health and really sort of comprehensive housing or housing is a huge problem. Yeah. So none of that stuff really happens much because the insurance companies don't pay for it. Yeah. So I they you know, someone can, can come and, and get therapy. They can get, you know, a thousand dollar 
in Vega shot or whatnot, but you know, they don't get art therapy. Mm-hmm. They don't get a lot of, you know, um, the sort of treatment that lasts long enough, you know, to really help people stabilize and, and, and gain a, a sense of stability. And I, I, feel, I feel like that hospitalizations can sometimes be really traumatizing and we don't acknowledge. Traumatic right. getting to the hospital. Yeah. And then just arriving at the hospital can be very traumatic for a lot of patients. And then just as you said, long ER waits while they're scared and symptomatic and want to leave, and many of them do, um, Mm -hmm. before they can secure a bed. And then the bed is three days long. And so what have you done? You terrorized a person just to get him this very tiny slice of of medical care that doesn't really include on a compre- in a comprehensive way all the many things that would actually support him or her as a person while they're trying to heal stabilize and heal yeah yeah absolutely and it's a shame um and i think also that kind of style people have people have acute medical issues that that don't get treated even when they're inpatient because it's such a, a flyby right yeah. And I think, you know, and, and I don't know just sort of my supposition, but, I, you know, I think a lot of folks are afraid to admit to the symptoms. They, they wouldn't, they're really afraid to say, you know, sometimes I feel like life is not worth living because they're afraid somebody's going to panic and send them to the hospital. Um, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, one thing I, I love about clinicians who train in the community mental health centers or the inpatient settings is that they don't get scared that easy. You know, mm. <laughs> They've kind of seen it all and they're you know wise enough not to get alarmed by by every little thing yeah the whole system is um not that therapeutic right and there, that's not to say that there aren't a lot of people out there working really hard you know to provide good care who who really do care and do good work but i think in the greater scheme of things it's it's hard to really help you've given us a, a vision of he- healing and i want to ask our signature question and then come back and there may be other questions we want to ask if that's okay um sure but what does healing mean to you healing to me from my clinical perspective means uh, a reduction in suffering primarily you know that when someone is really suffering and and tormented by their situation that for them to get enough relief that they're comfortable that they can conduct their daily lives they can have satisfying relationships I think that's really and and to to feel like they are directing the course of their own life so kind of regaining a sense of agency in their own lives and just you know not suffering all the time I think uh, we ask that question of everyone who stops by the podcast and there are so many different ideas of what recovery should look like, you know? And I always try to tell people in a joking manner, this is not an episode of Law and Order where a psychotic person takes two pills and he's testifying the next day. That is not how Mm -hmm. this recovery works. It is stops and starts and ups and downs and um, some good times and then some more difficult times. It's never a straight line. And I think one of the brilliant things 
one of the most brilliant things I heard from a doctor was recovery is whatever the person can recover from his former self. He recovers his sense of humor. That's good recovery. He eats dinner with his parents for the first time in five years when he's been too afraid to leave his bedroom. That's good recovery. And I know that you support your patients in all those small incremental steps that add up to a better life for them. And I really, yeah, I really love you as a clinician. The more I get to know your, you as a person and your philosophy and just your broad spectrum and your deep respect for these people who didn't get sick on purpose, Mm -hmm. can't, very often can't control what they do. And just the chronic disparaging of their illness, the name calling, the, you know, how bad they must feel to be a burden on their families and all those other factors. So I'm really, really glad to know you. And the more I get to know you, the more I think, I wish every hospital and (laughs) clinical Mm -hmm. care setting had a Catherine, but with your training program, we can duplicate you hopefully. Thank you. That that's very kind. Um, and I have to say too that you know I have had great enjoyment working with my clients too. Wonderful people. I just really get to love you know a lot of a lot of these folks. Um, and partially, you know, it's my admiration sounds kind of trite, but like for for their their bravery and just keep it going. Their bravery. Uh, yeah. And just continuing um, right. despite of enormous, enormous obstacles. Enormous uh, obstacles. Right. So there's, I, I respect that sort of tenacity. Um, I do too. Sticking around and just, you know, the, so someone who is living with a psychotic disorder can still have a fantastic sense of humor. They can have all kinds of wonderful talents. Right. Um, and just be endearing in, in all, all sorts of ways. The follow-up to that is, is my last question. The follow-up I would say is that sometimes along the way when I was a pastor or when I, would, uh, when I was back then a patient of mental health care, um, I would hear about my psychiatrist and my therapist, you know, must take a special person to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think you need to hear, you need to hear that you're special and that, you know, you're doing, but there's also a caveat to that because I think we're also saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. you can't catch me doing that. So what, what is the greatest <laughs> obstacle to getting more Catherine's the training and the, you know, the cost and the insurance. We brought that in a little bit. What is one obstacle you think would make a, a, a highlight if we hurdle it? Hmm. Well, you know, I guess you know a really important thing is 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 money. Social workers are the lowest pay, and there are all kinds of different clinicians. I just happen to be a social worker. 
uh, are the lowest paid masters bearing professionals and people working in mental health, you know, for further down community mental health, kind of lower uh, that so many people in both of the clinics that I worked at had two jobs mm-hmm. just to pay the bills. You know, yeah. you work full time in a, in a challenging job and then you moonlight at the ER or, su- or supervise other clinicians or, or do whatever you do to actually make enough money to survive. And that just, you don't keep people in the field, you know. That's what you have to have a master's degree. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have a master's and, and it's to do ongoing it's, education all the time. And yep. Yes continuing education and your the idea is the same way that we treat teachers they should be there for the love totally the the sheer love of teaching and yes you like people who are interesting and odd and different (laughs) and that's to your credit that you love all those people I do that I know you do (laughs) but that should not be the basis of what is a really, really important job, treating people with psychosis with dignity and respect and trying to help them live a good life. That is such an important job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the money is a big part of, I think, why people leave the field, especially, you know, from from clinic settings. And also, whenever I would be struggling, it was never the clients. It was it was the paperwork, you know, yeah. I, mean, I think well-meaning-ish regulation on regulation on regulation over the years just made doing the job impossible. Mm-hmm. It was like you could either, you know, treat the chart or treat the client. It was oh. hard to do both. And I didn't end up having the stamina to continue yeah. doing both. And yeah. I wasn't going to shortchange the clients. Well, you are a little gold mind, lady. And <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, can I, I mean, say one more thing real quick? Yeah, I think, think what's really important too in working with this population is, is getting in there with the medicine too. Yeah. I think there's this, I mean, it wasn't in the, the settings that I worked in it so exclusively, but I think a lot of it is like, it's like the doctors are over here. They do the medicine part. The therapists are over here. They do the talking part, but you need to understand the medications. You need to be willing right. to be involved in that and to understand it and to be supportive of it. I think that's, that's really important. Very important point. That's- I agree. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate that. That's uh, part of the the equation that that all of us, whether we are uh, taking the medication or if you're in a role to pre- prescribe it or better understand it, so that you we you know I see I see my I'm at a particularly rough patch right now, but I see my uh, my psychiatrist roughly about once a month for. 15 to 20 minutes, actually psychiatric nurse practitioner. And then um, my therapist weekly at this point, but uh, you know, if it's, uh, there have been times in my life where I have seen uh, my psychiatrist maybe once every quarter. Yep. And I, I have, uh, I've used my therapy therapist to better present to my psychiatrist what my needs are. 
So it really does take a team. Yes, that's a really good, really good point, Tony, is that, you know, the therapist spends so much more time usually with somebody that they, they're going to understand stuff that is not evident to the psychiatrist in a 15 minute visit. So we're, when do you come up for a raise that we could, we could approve your salary? (laughs) I I am self-employed now. Uh, (laughs) So there's that. We'll refer people when you have openings. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's uh, my, absolutely my pleasure. I really, I really admire what you're doing and, and um, you know, good stuff. Thanks so Thank lot. you, Catherine. Uh, we really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Keep Thank your you, Laura. beautiful humor and smile for every patient that you see. You're doing more good than you could probably know that you are. You're doing so much good in the world in every single small thing that you do for your patients. Thanks.